Welcome to the 14th episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is Breakaway Advisor Builds Her Own Firm and Wealth Follows. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on wealthmanagement.com, as well as iTunes and other resources. Seemingly, the common ground amongst all breakaways is that at one point or another in their careers, they explored the possibility of moving to another brokerage firm, but chose instead to go independent, to decline a big recruiting deal in return for freedom, ownership, customization, creativity, innovation, and the ability to serve clients without the limitations imposed by compliance departments that manage the lowest common denominator. These advisors recognized that while there are many clients to whom a name brand is important, there are equally as many who support innovation and entrepreneurship. The advisors are at peace with not winning every client, but instead embrace the ones who will root for them, those whose interests are aligned with theirs and who value their advisor's ability to service them with freedom of thought and complete objectivity. So today, I've invited Dory Fain to join me as my guest. Dory is the founder and CEO of And Wealth, a boutique RIA and financial advisory firm serving a mostly female client base who are managing major life events. Dory will share her thinking behind her move and her unique perspective in this candid interview. Spend five minutes with Dory, and you'll see that she is a courageous, independent thinker who had no business being an employee. And that's why she left her job as a financial advisor and a $225 million book at Smith Barney behind in 2008 after 12 years there to go independent. Her move is especially noteworthy because she made it at a time before it was in vogue to do so. Dory started her career at Smith Barney in 1997 as the youngest woman in its brokerage program, but over time found that she chafed at the firm's lack of planning focus and entrepreneurial spirit. Coming to a turning point after the birth of her son in 2007, she decided it was time to vote with her feet. The other wirehouses were paying big bounties to recruit advisors, especially women, but she felt making that move wouldn't have made enough of a difference for herself or, more importantly, her clients. So after talking with more than 50 RIA principals to get a sense of what was possible, she realized that she placed much greater value on freedom, control, creativity, individuality, and ownership than she did on upfront money, turnkey support, and the like. And so, And Wealth was born. Dory, thank you so much for joining me today. Let's jump right in. I know you have a niche practice. Can you tell me a little bit about it, who your clients are, and what makes your focus unique? Good morning, Mindy. It's so nice to be with you this morning. I am the founder and CEO of a firm called Ann Wealth, and we have a boutique practice. Uh, We specialize in working with women who are experiencing significant life transitions, and we have two parts of our practice. We have a standalone financial planning practice where we do 
significant amount of divorce financial planning. And we also do comprehensive general financial planning, but it allows us to engage with clients in a very customized way. And then we also have an ongoing investment management practice where we build and maintain long-term investment plans for clients. And what makes our niche unique is that we market exclusively to women and we are really dedicated to getting the financial services experience right for women. Interesting and wonderful, actually. So just to orient us, can you give me an idea of how much in assets you manage and about how many clients? Yeah. So between our two practices, we serve approximately between 40 and 50 clients. And on the asset management side, our assets are around 200 to 225 million. Great. So you chose to leave Smith Barney at a time when it was only the bravest of the lot that were breaking away from wirehouses to go independent. It wasn't in vogue in those days. That's probably a good way to say it. So can you tell me what went into your decision to go independent and what ultimately led you to the RIA space? Yes, you're absolutely right. This was at a time when the letters RIA were very unfamiliar. I had never even heard of this when I worked at Smith Barney. And what led me down this path was that I was very devoted to really materially changing the structure of how I was able to engage with clients. So working at a large investment firm, we were very limited in the area of customized financial planning. We were limited to working with the -the off-the-shelf tools, and it really inhibited my ability to serve clients. And then behind the scenes, there were a lot of operational frustrations where we were in very much in a culture of no. So it was a constant fight to try to get our clients' needs met. And then beyond that, I was very disenchanted with the sales culture that I was working in where there were reward trips or levels of access to information or conferences based on production of how much you sold. And when I did my research, I learned that that existed not only in a large investment firm, it existed in regional firms, it existed in supervised independence. And so I really was determined to find a place to work where none of that existed. And in the end, the only place was starting my own firm. And thankfully, I was introduced to the concept of an RIA by a dear friend named Adam Shear, who works at asset management firm. And he was the very first person not only to introduce me to the concept of RIA, but to encourage me that starting my own business, he felt would be the best path for me, having known me for many years before that. And so I really credit that interaction with leading me to becoming an RIA. I bet you're incredibly grateful to Adam Shear today. Absolutely. He's still one of my biggest champions, and I rely on him significantly as a sounding board. And uh, he's just a wonderful resource in the industry. Yeah. Well, everybody needs a cheerleader. So how wonderful is that? So you say that you were feeling frustrated and disenchanted. What were your clients saying at the time? Did they notice? Were you able to protect them from it? Was it that you were hearing frustration from them as well? Well, the dynamic with my clients was often that we had shared frustration. So a particular experience that I point to is that my most sophisticated client who had been with me for several years really needed thoughtful, complex estate planning. And naively, I brought in our estate planning group at the firm, not understanding that their underlying compensation was tied to the sale of life insurance. And so ultimately, she did purchase a substantial life insurance policy and 
over time, it failed miserably. It cost a lot of money. We were never able to track down the people that sold it. And that experience for my client, from her perspective, is that we were always in it together. It always felt like it was us against them. And so when I ultimately decided to start my own firm, I received so much support from my core base of clients that I had identified would be a good fit to move with me that it was more of this feeling of finally we're going to be able to give up that fight and do things the way that we think they should be done. But frankly, the majority of clients didn't really know the difference. I would shelter them from much of the complexity of working at a big firm. And I didn't really know until I was on my own. I had no idea that it didn't have to be as difficult as it was and that the the conflict that I felt internally around doing right for clients and the pressure within the firm just simply could go away. That's such an interesting commentary because we hear that a lot. Advisors work very hard and probably more their staff sometimes and the advisors work very hard to insulate or protect the clients from a lot of the inefficiencies or bureaucracy or things that frustrate them, things that could frustrate them. And what finally oftentimes wakes an advisor up is the either loss of a big client or threat of loss of a big client. And it's actually a shame that it takes something like that to make an advisor pay attention. So it's even more admirable that you found the courage to do what you did at a time when not everybody was doing it for sure. And you weren't even sure that a better way existed. Yeah, it was really a exercise in, well, before I leave this industry, I'm going to try this. And if this doesn't work, then this isn't the place for me. So it, it was a bit of a experiment to see, could it really be better? But knowing Adam Shear and how his business operated, I did have some insight into the independence that they enjoyed in operating their business the way that they felt was best. Mm. Okay. So competing priorities, especially for a single mother, can make taking risks like the one you took to become an entrepreneur especially challenging. Love to hear a little bit. What were you feeling on the day you walked out of Smith Barney? And when you told me your story, you shared that not only did you find the courage to leave Smith Barney and build your own firm, which is daunting in and of itself, but you chose to actually leave $200 million of your $225 million book behind in order to take the leap and form and wealth. So that does seem, upon reflection, perhaps a crazy move, but I had two competing interests. One was that I have a very low risk tolerance for litigation, and I did not want any legal energy, expense, time at all. So I knew that if I left a substantial part of my business at Smith Barney, that they wouldn't really have much to come after. And the reality is that the assets I left behind were not truly clients that matched well with the philosophy of Ann Wealth. And so while it sounds like a lot to give up, in reality, I felt like I was gaining a far more dedicated and devoted client base. And reconnected with Frank Pizzicello, who was my market counsel contact when I left. And we were laughing about how intense my aversion to litigation was. And so I was clear that that was the right thing for me. When I left Smith Barney, I was still married and my son was two years old. And I remember distinctly leaving 399 Park Avenue, walking out the door, like, what have I just done? And I walked 
across the street to my new office. And thankfully, I had arranged to have a beautiful Park Avenue office as a subtenant of a dear friend of mine who had their own business and they had an office for me. And I walked in and he literally (laughs) opened his arms, gave me a huge hug, and he said, all right, let's get to work. And he was an entrepreneur. And I think anyone who takes a risk like that knows that if you really carefully thought about it, you probably wouldn't do it. So there is an aspect of just moving forward, having faith, and you sort of say like, what's the worst case scenario? And thankfully for any advisor who's built a business, we know how employable we are. So in the back of my mind, my my plan B even today is God forbid, if I ever had to go get a job, I know how valuable my skill set is, particularly as a woman advisor, I know I could go get a job. And that's always been my fallback. So I felt like I didn't have Um, you know, I wouldn't lose everything, but I felt really determined to make it work. And it's really paid off. I love that attitude. I applaud you. And uh, I think it sounds like it's well-deserved success. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you is not only was it not in vogue to go independent when you did, but the cottage industry that's been born today and continues to expand to support breakaway advisors was largely non-existent. So firms like Dynasty or Hightower as service providers or Focus Financial and other capital providers didn't exist. The ability to get a loan from a bank like Live Oak wasn't available nine or 10 years ago. So what was it like to essentially go it alone? And while I get that you got support from a friend like Adam Shear and cheerleading from friends that were entrepreneurs, where did the majority of your support and guidance come from? It's a very good question because in retrospect, I am blown away by how little was available. I didn't know that then, but looking at what's available today, it's it's been a remarkable evolution in our industry. And the reality is the second most significant person who influenced my ability to do this was Andrew Magnus at Schwab. So Andrew was the person that helped shepherd me throughout this whole process. And looking back on emails from 2009, when I was starting, Andrew was literally sending me you know, this is who you can go to for marketing. This is who you can go to set up your LLC. This is who you can go. I mean, every aspect of how you would set up a business that really doesn't relate to Schwab at all from a custodial standpoint. He was there every step of the way. And some of the key partners that we still work with today came through an introduction from Andrew Magnus. So I can't say enough about his role in our early success and knowing who the resources were. They, they really had this sort of step-by-step how to start a business. And I followed the steps and I interviewed people. And I think that because Andrew and I have a very similar sensibility, the people he referred were always on point. They were fair and reasonable, really solid people. And he did a lot of that legwork to vet who he would send on. The other part of it is there's something that you don't know when you work in a big wirehouse firm in particular, at least the way I existed in a wirehouse firm, I had no idea that there was an entire community of entrepreneurial people that wouldn't even consider interacting with me because I was an employee of a big company. So while there are many people who self-select into the big brand name, there are probably equally number of people who select away from that. And so all of a sudden I could join entrepreneurial groups. I had unlimited support from other entrepreneurs in any business who admired the risk to start your own business. So what you lose 
which I felt was very insignificant from the big firm support, you gain in terms of the entire worldwide community of entrepreneurship. And that's really how it got started. So if firms like Dynasty or Hightower or other service providers or more of this cottage industry existed when you left Smith Barney almost a decade ago, do you think that you would have leveraged them? Or do you still believe that working in partnership with the custodian alone was enough support? Well, there were some concepts of what has become of a dynasty or high tower around at that time. And I can tell you I, that would not have been for me because in the end, behind the scenes, you're dealing with some of the same things that I was looking to get away from in terms of production levels or I just didn't want anybody in my business and I didn't want anybody telling me how to do what I felt was right. And if you have those, while you gain a lot from those types of, you know, the infrastructure and the support, the leverage that you would get, the scalability, I appreciate all of that. But in the end, I thought if I'm going to at any point bump up against someone, for example, in compliance that says that they don't like the way I'm writing a thank you note or they don't like what I'm going to do for Mother's Day for our clients, then what's the point? So in the end, I wanted 100% control. So I would say no, that wouldn't have been right for me. So to clarify, I hear you loud and clear. The truth of the matter is that the difference between Dynasty and Hightower, for example, as service providers is that they enable the advisor who wants to be completely independent who wants to manage their own compliance and choose what they want to send their clients on Mother's Day, et cetera. They don't take any ownership at stake. They have no control. They're there simply to leverage as a service provider and provide scale. I understand that. I don't know. It didn't offer enough for me. Whenever I've explored those conversations and I hear what they're offering, I say to myself, but I'm doing that. We're doing that just as effectively for us on our own. And that's the answer. Yeah. And even though, and I think also many of the resources they offer are things we don't utilize. So for example, and I don't know their business model, clearly, I don't know it very specifically, but if some of the things that were available then offered a huge research capability, well, we don't need a big research capability. We have a very elegant, simplified investment management solution. So I didn't, think it was worth the the share of what I would have to pay for that platform as an example. And it was all very new then. So while we certainly the dynasties and the high towers of the world have proven that they're great partners to advisors, it was very new then. And I was very skeptical. And you are a thousand percent right. So, and I think that's the point. It's more as, as we fast forward 10 years and firms like that have grown and gotten it more right, would tenure, for, te, you know, would mature you, would tenure further ahead you have chosen them? And I think I'm not asking the question to suggest that everybody needs to use a service provider. I think it's more to illustrate the fact, and you're absolutely right, that some people just prefer to do it yourself. And it sounds like you really loved the building and creating all in your own image. And that's wonderful. So how hard was it to learn to be a business owner? How much time did you and do you spend on non-client, non-revenue generating tasks related to managing the business overall? Yeah. As I think about that balance between running the business and doing the business, and I think any business owner would say this, to the extent that I've been able to outsource the running of the business, I have. And I've done that from very early on. 
But the reality is it's, I'm the CEO. It still falls to me. A lot of the decision-making needs to be done by me. And so I think even reflecting on an example of choosing a service provider like a Hightower or Dynasty, you do reach a point where scale becomes an issue. And so it becomes unsustainable to keep spending the amount of time that you need on your business to grow your business, to run the business, and then also be the advisor to clients of the business. And so I've been very mindful about that balance between how much time is spent on each of those. So I don't know is the answer because it's so fluid. And I talk about this all the time. You know, my work life never ends and my family life never ends. It's a constant intersection. So it feels like I'm constantly working on my business, just like I'm constantly managing my family. So I don't have a good answer to that, but I, you know, I meet other owners of investment advisory firms. I'm saying you're paying your own bills. I mean, I've never paid my own bills. I've always had an outsource finance. I outsource all the financial management of our firm as an example, because I know that's not the highest and best use of my time to be doing bookkeeping and running QuickBooks. So from the very beginning, I've had a model to surround me to help get as many of the day-to-day business functions outside of things that I need to be doing. And then I obviously oversee things. So I don't have a good answer to how much time because it just feels like it's like a child. How much time do you spend raising your child? Well, it's endless, right? We're it's sort of that same thing. It's like having another child. Right. But I, and I would say the same. I've always looked at my business as my third child. So I actually think right. that that's a good analogy. But if you love what you do, it doesn't feel like I'm working all the time. My, my business actually brings me as much joy as oftentimes my family does. And so that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I love what you said, because I think that being a successful business owner, no matter what the business, is about knowing your strengths scaffolding yourself with the right people and amplifying or supplementing what you do well in order to sort of round it out and to enable you to spend your time on your core competencies. That's what makes the most efficient and effective use. Yeah, I agree. There's someone who said to me that you want to make sure that you're spending your time doing only the things that you can do, that you're doing the things that only you can do. And I'm really the best qualified person to be out developing new relationships nurturing our client relationships. And so the day-to-day operation of the business is not the highest and best use of my time. Okay. So pivoting to clients, in your opinion, why do you think your being independent is better for clients? Well, certainly for our clients, being independent is essential. There's so many aspects of our work today that simply would not be allowed, if you will, in the confines of a big investment firm. As an example, our ability to serve as expert witnesses in cases in divorce matters, to provide expert witness testimony, or if it's a matter of providing really thorough financial analysis, and frankly, to be compensated for that time. And that's a critical piece of our financial planning work is that when I worked in a big firm, we didn't have the capability to do independent financial planning and only be paid on financial planning services. We had to actually be managing the money in order to be compensated. And we did financial planning as an add-on service. So for us and our clients, independence is essential. And I also think that when you're working with people who are going through significant life transitions 
And particularly in the area of divorce, where often there's a healthy amount of mistrust and uncertainty in someone's life, the ability to really connect and relate to people from a branding's perspective and really get it right for them, I could only imagine that happening in an independent environment. We would not have been able to have the flexibility in a big firm to create that same experience. Got it. So what does your pitch sound like? to a client prospect as an independent firm? I always laugh at that question because it's not like we have such a dedicated pitch. It's that when you have a niche practice and you've identified that there are problems to be solved for a certain set of people, those people self-select you. So I don't feel that I'm pitching people I feel it's more accurate to say, here's who we are. Here's what we're really good at. Does this sound like it relates to you? Is this a need that you have? So I always make this analogy to medical specialists. So if you're the best shoulder surgeon, there's no way you could help someone who doesn't have a shoulder problem. So if someone has a shoulder problem and you've developed a reputation of being a thoughtful, caring surgeon, then people select you. And, and I feel very much that way about our practice. We're not for everyone. We're intentionally not trying to meet everybody's needs out there. We're not the typical advisor that I used to work with that would so greedy and would take every single client off the street. Um, we're much more disciplined and dedicated to our niche. And so in the end, I think people end up self-selecting into that and saying, okay, either they have the expertise that we need or this is an approach that we relate to. And so to what extent does the fact that you're independent play into that initial description of who we are? In other words, if you meet a prospect and you begin to develop a relationship and that sort of instant connection, the cultural connection is there. To what extent does the fact that you're independent weigh in on the prospects or client's decision, do you think? Well, I'd have to draw the conclusion that because I have so much conviction about being independent, that people relate to my confidence and conviction in the importance of independence. I think the industry has done enough to disparage itself that people have a healthy skepticism about big financial firms actually operating in the best interest of clients. So that doesn't take for me to educate people about that. They've done that. The industry itself made it easier enough for me to say that we have the ability to really focus on clients without any other influences other than what's right for clients. And you simply can't say that if you work in a big financial company. It's just not true. I imagine what you said before about when you became an entrepreneur, suddenly the world of entrepreneurs became available to you to tap them for support is probably true of clients, that there will be clients that aren't winnable, that are married to or will only want to work for an advisor who works for a big brand name firm. But as you said it, that there are likely equally as many clients or prospects that would root for an entrepreneur, would want to work with you simply because you are independent. Absolutely. And I have some very good, good friends that still work at what has become of our previous firm at Morgan Stanley. And these are exceptional people, exceptional advisors, and their clients are well served in the structure where they are, and that's the right fit for them. So there's something for everyone. I don't think it's that one is better 
or worse. I think it's better or worse for me to exist in and better or worse for the client to select. I couldn't agree with you more. I think you have to be okay with you win the ones you're meant to win and you're okay with losing the ones that you aren't and that works for everyone. And it's not about good or bad. It's about what was best for you and the clients that you service. So let's pivot for a second then to your end game. So tell me a little bit about, I guess, before the end game, what are your goals for growth in the long term? And will inorganic growth, say via recruiting or M&A, be a part of the plan? Yeah, I'm very, very motivated to continue to grow and expand the work that we do so that we can really have an influence and serve more people in this way. And what that looks like in the future, I imagine involves recruiting. I don't know. I always say to people, I'm very open. If someone has an idea that can help grow in a way that would help reach more people with the work that we do, I am all ears. And the reality is that as much as you find pockets of firms like ours that are getting it right for women, there still remains to be an opportunity nationwide to have a leading organization that is serving women's needs and financial services as the go-to choice on a national scale. So I do have big aspirations and how that would evolve and what that would look like. There's still so much opportunity for that to unfold. And my goal is to prove that we can do as well as our competitors, but do it in our way. And I feel like we're still approving that, you know, day in and day out. Yeah. Well, that's the definition of being independent is doing it in your own image, your way, in a way that feels soulful and right. Yeah. So as the sole owner of And Wealth, do you think much about your succession plans? I mean, I know you've got a long one way, you're young with a young family, but do you give much thought to the end game and what do you imagine it'll look like? Yeah, well, I think it's an obligation of any business owner, particularly who serves clients in the way that we do to have a thoughtful succession plan in place. So I've, I actually have a, a agreement in terms of God forbid, if something happened to me, what would happen with a predecessor firm that could step in and, and make for a smooth transition for clients. And in the bigger picture, I sort of, as an entrepreneur, I have aspirations that potentially there's a future partnership that, that helps us get bigger and in a way that we, you know, maybe we reach our maximum potential and then there's a partnership out there that makes sense. But like I said, I'm very open. You know, it's so hard to picture when you have a 10-year-old child what your life is going to be like. So for today, I'm going to keep my head down and keep working hard and keep trying to serve clients in the best way possible and just try to stay, you know, remain as open as possible to whatever could come in the future. Yeah. And you know, what I think that speaks to, Dory, is if you worked, if you were still an employee of what is now Morgan Stanley, there would be one way for you to retire out, and that would be via their um, retiring advisor program, or if it were Merrill Lynch, their retiring advisor program. And one of the biggest reasons people go independent is because they want to create optionality, flexibility. They want to be able to create their own end game and entertain lots of different options. And so you're 100% right. You have a responsibility to be thoughtful but you certainly don't need to have all the answers today. So I've got one final question for you. With the benefit of 10 years hindsight, what sort of advice would you give prospective breakaways? Well, if I had any idea of the possibilities that existed in this independent community, I would have been much more open 
I literally believed the hype. I thought I needed a big brand name. I thought that my clients cared about the big brand name way more than they did. I thought the firm did so much for me that there's no way you could possibly make it all happen on your own. So I would have been much more connected to our peer community. That's the biggest gap for me in my time working for a big firm is that I was so isolated and only knowing the advisors in my office and the two friends I had at Merrill Lynch. And instead of thinking about each other as competitors, think about each other as colleagues. If you think about the medical community or the legal community and how much collegiality comes from the specialties that people work in and how people interact with each other and learn from each other. That is something that is greatly missed in the financial services industry. So my best advice is to anyone considering breakaway, considering staying at a wirehouse for the rest of your career, is that there is such a benefit to that community of all of us coming together and learning from each other. And that spirit exists in the independent space, but it really was lacking when I worked at a big firm. That would be the advice that I would give is to to really try to engage in the community so that we all get the benefit of learning from each other and knowing each other and ultimately doing our best work for clients as a result of that. Mm. Thank you, Dory. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Mindy. This has been great. Dory summed it up best when she said, I believed the hype, that I needed a big brand name behind me in order to succeed. And what I know now is how untrue that was. By following her instincts, she found the courage to leave significant chips on the table and build what she felt was a better way to serve her clients. And wealth, 10 years later, proves how that determination can create success. In our next episode, Matt Sonnen, president and founder of PFI Advisors, an operations and tech consultancy to the RIA space, will join us to share his perspective on what it takes to build an independent business. It'll be a great glimpse into what's involved and what questions need to be asked before embarking on the journey. So I hope you'll join us. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for some valuable content. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have any specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or by email mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please know that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank wealthmanagement.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.